All right, welcome everyone to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro Podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman, and on the show with me today, we have a special guest, Edie Nathan. Edie is an author, public speaker, and licensed therapist. She is an AASECT certified sex therapist, hypnotherapist, and certified EMDR practitioner with more than 20 years of experience. Edie earned degrees from New York University and Fordham University with postgraduate training at the Ackerman Institute for Family Therapy. She practices in New York City. Edie, welcome to the show. Thanks, Toby. It's great to be here. Awesome. Well, tell me what, what originally led you down this path of, of wanting to become you know, a, a psychotherapist? What did, Were you always kind of drawn to psychology or, or what, what sort of prompted that uh, career path? There are a lot of reasons why somebody becomes, you know, what they become or who they become, right? So there were a lot of, of uh, feeders into the decision to become a therapist. Did I start out wanting to become a therapist? Not, not even in the slightest. I didn't think I was going to be a therapist. I actually thought I was going to move to New York, which is what I did from Chicago. And I was uh, going to NYU for theater and sociology, and I was going to be a theater person. And I was going to act, I was going to do Broadway, I was going to do films, and that was what I was going to do. And, um, you know, people plan, and um, something up there laughs, whoever that may be. <laughs> and, and so that plan, because of life circumstances, which included trauma and um, the effects of trauma and also really bad anxiety that I had to really stop what I was doing. And it was at that point, um, I call it um, one of the, the first moments of a hero's journey or a Shiro journey. And that Shiro journey was, oh, wow, I have such anxiety. I can't even leave my front door. I can't even go outside. I don't even know how to manage what's before me. And my entire life had been spent to curate the talent of being an actor. And it was like, now what? And it was a, a huge now what kind of moment, which is part of the Shiro's journey, that hero's journey, right? It's like you have your ordinary life and you're going along and something hits you and it changes you forever. And it was really having to deal with phobias that I realized, okay, so I'm more homebound now. I can't go out on auditions. The last audition I went on, I got called back and I couldn't even get back onto a train to go to the callback. And it was at that moment I realized things are not good. And it was having to you know, I had a lot of people around me and they helped me get help. They helped me get therapy. And slowly I began to work my way out of the cave, out of the darkness. Um, and of course, once you visit that kind of cave, that darkness, that, that journey, the journey of, um, of really um, the, 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 the dark goddess, um, 
it's a, it's a never ending journey. And I was then forever changed and decided, you know, the therapist who had helped me, I wanted to be able to engage and, and help others with my knowledge. And that began to some degree, my journey. Got it. So it was kind of a, a, a personal, personal triumph over kind of personal obstacles and then kind of wanting to potentially kind of give back to others based on what had helped you. Absolutely. Well said. Awesome. So take me through the process, I guess, of, of what, I guess, did you try like kind of different therapies and did you find some of them helpful, some of them not helpful? Like what, I guess, kind of, if you could detail that, that hero's journey, if you will, and, and how you were able to kind of get out of that, that uh, stage of, of dealing with all that anxiety. So the anxiety, so to answer your question, there wasn't one answer. So anybody who suffers from anxiety will tell you that they often don't want to take any medication because they already feel like life is out of control. So to take medication means like giving over what little control you might think you have. So the thought of taking medication, even though it had been recommended, was like like the lowest on the lowest rung of an option for me. So I first started with just a regular talk therapy. That um, may have helped to some degree, but it didn't help at all. And what I really needed was someone who could take me outside and walk with me and help me realize that even though I felt when I walked outside and I couldn't take another step, that I wasn't going to die if I took another step. And it's called in vivo therapy. And basically the therapist is right there by your side. So it was a combination of that kind of therapy along with what was what is called NLP neuro-linguistic programming. And I had a wonderful, wonderful therapist who um, helped me work with my brain. And this is long before the conversation about the brain and the brain's plasticity was common knowledge. We weren't talking about neuroplasticity there. We, it, it, EMDR had, you know, had yet to be like invented even or, or, or brought out again to the public eye. Um, but this NLP was um, a change agent. And what it did was it, it helped to change the way the brain, my brain, was holding on to the trauma traumatic experience that I was going through and that my body was going through um, every time I went outside, every time I had to do something that I felt I couldn't do. And so it was really, a, it was a combination of a lot of therapies. Once I, I, I began to trust the process, it was then and only then that I could begin to even think about taking some medication. And the thing about that kind of anxiety is, you know, you, you can take a very nice little cocktail of medications that don't make you stoned, but at least begin to also work with the brain and help the brain not react, not become reactive to situations where you would normally become reactive. And you're basically retraining the brain. 
So the idea is not to stay on these meds for any length of time. I think the longest period of time I was on them was about a year, and then I was, and then I was not fine, but I was certainly functioning at a different level. And being able to function at a different level allowed me then to go back to school, to get a couple of master's degrees, and 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 to do to some degree what I'm doing now, and and to re-engage in a way with a public platform, which was what theater was, and going out and doing public speaking and um, leading groups and leading workshops in ways that I really couldn't have done back then. Tell me, uh, can we can we kind of dial in on uh, neuro-linguistic programming? Because that's, that's something that, that may have been mentioned maybe once or twice previously on the show, but I don't know if uh, we went into it in any depth. Can you tell me a little about what, what that technique is and, and kind of its use? Sure. Absolutely. Um, so NLP um, is really about changing the cognitive way we hold on to a thought. So cognitions are thoughts, okay? We have negative thoughts, those are negative cognitions, and we have positive thoughts, and those are positive cognitions. So the negative cognition might be, I can't do this, or I'm gonna die if I do this. And, that, and you may not have any proof that that's what's gonna happen, that you're gonna die if you walk outside, but with your heart pounding as much as it's pounding, with your blood pressure rising, with your pulse, I mean, there were times Toby, in a sitting position, if I was in the midst of an anxiety attack, my pulse could reach up to 180, 200, just sitting there, just from something that I was thinking and just by something that my body was reacting to. What NLP does is it takes those impulses and it rearranges them, it changes them. It so an example of an EMDR, I'm sorry, of, a, of an NLP technique, an example of an NLP technique is to say, okay, I have this anxiety. And by the way, anxiety and anger are very tied together. So, and I learned that, this is a, an aside, but I learned that when I was on the subway and I was finally like feeling a little freer, but subways were hard and this guy, and I was a little anxious because I had like three more stops and this guy came to me and wanted to take my chain and put his hand to my neck. And I put my hand on his wrist, I don't know where this came from, and I said, don't you dare, with an expletive in there, okay? Don't you dare. And I pushed his hand away and then I got off the train and the anxiety was gone. What NLP did, for me, I think the reason I could do that is because it was like you bottle, you take the anxiety and you imagine that it's in a ball. And whatever is in that ball, you name it. Maybe it's anger, maybe it's frustration, maybe it's just abject fear. And you imagine, and your eyes are closed and you're in a very relaxed state. Imagine that you're putting that into the ball, into a ball, into a ball. Now imagine that you throw it up and you throw it away from yourself and see it slowly, 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 moving, moving away from you. And these images are very powerful. And then imagine 
and you've worked on this, imagine that there's another ball and it's white. And in this ball is hope and joy and calm. And describe all of those things and understand what they look like for you and allow that ball now to come down and wash over you. And as it comes down, I can even feel it in my body right now. And as it comes down, take a breath. And what you're doing is you're letting your brain know that you're going to change the environment that's going on inside. You're talking to the amygdala. You're talking to your superpowers. You're talking to the parts of you that are um, want to hold on to what it knows, which is the negative cognitions, and you're, you're like bulldozing them. And that's what NLP does in a variety of different techniques. I mean, hypnosis is part of NLP. And I, you know, learned a lot about hypnosis and of course, engage, do a lot of hypnosis in my, in my practice. Um, some of this may sound woo woo and it's not meant to sound woo woo. And people say, oh, I can't, I can't be hypnotized. And it's like, okay. So Toby, do you drive? Yes. Have you ever gotten onto the, an expressway and gotten on at exit 10 and then gotten off at exit, let's say 30? Do you remember every part of that trip? No. But wait a minute, you were driving a 2000 pound car. You don't remember? So you were like in trance. Now, you, you might not have realized you were in trance, but you were just going automatically. So when people say, oh, I can't do this, I can't be hypnotized, we're there more than we realize. We disappear more than we realize. It happens, it happens when we drive, it happens with people who um, struggle with, with issues around weight and weight loss, okay? Because they can't, they're not even aware when they're putting food in their mouth. They're kind of, they're, they're numb they're anesthetized, they're in trance. So what we know is when we bring, bring people out of the trance state and, and, and they become more aware of what they're thinking, it is in those moments that they can then knock the negative cognitions out of the park and invite in the positive cognitions. Awesome. So it, it sounds a bit like um, kind of taking the, the sort of intense emotions and sort of detaching a bit from them and then being able to maybe deal with them a bit more objectively rather than like holding on to them so much as like sort of being a part of us. Is that a fair yeah, way to think I, about yeah, it? That's right. It's like, so there's like techniques and I mentioned um, EMDR a little bit and, and NLP and some of the techniques in, in each of them are similar in that they're both working with, with the cognitions, with the thoughts, with the thinking. EMDR doesn't in any way do any kind of hypnosis, however. So I will often combine the two because I think that they work really, really nicely hand in hand. Um, and again, it's dealing with the way that the brain is holding on to trauma, the way the brain is holding on to what feels like an emergency. And so it's taking that emergency and moving it from within to, you know, an internal experience to an external experience, like 
putting the trauma or putting the belief or putting the fear or the grip of grief onto a screen and saying, okay, I'm watching this, but it's not, it's not me. It is me, but I have some distance. And it is in that distancing where you can begin to feel some sense of relief. And, and it, it's, it's, it, it's magical. Yes. It's not magical. I mean, um, one of my, one of my favorite and best teachers is, um, uh, Van der Koch. He wrote, um, he wrote the body keeps the score. And, um, he, in his book, he talks really about how the body is a holder and, you know, Bessel van der Koch in his, in, 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 in his really very thorough, exhaustive work, like, discusses how much our bodies and our brains hold on to trauma. Now, my specialty is grief. Um, however, the umbrella of grief for me is anxiety and anger and role confusion. And I often think we are misdiagnosed um, with um, a quote unquote disorder when in fact, it's grief that's really what's going on. Awesome. And, and that's something that, uh, so you wrote a, wrote a whole book about that, right? The, I the did. book, it, It's Grief, The Dance of Self-Discovery Through Trauma and Loss. Tell me, what, what was it that sort of inspired you to, to want to share, you know, to put all of these sort of thoughts together um, and actually write a book? Well, my first response is, why not? Okay. And my second response is that too often people think of grief as it only relates to the very hard loss of a loved one. And um, I did not coin this next phrase, disenfranchised grief, but we have disenfranchised grief, we, which means it is a grief that occurs not because of the loss of a loved one, but because of other losses that we incur in life. So I, I had, and, and I talk about this in my book, I had a lot of what I call little griefs and, you know, little G's and big G's, little griefs and big griefs in my life. And, and leading up to the point of that moment when I had such bad anxiety. And, and it included having been severely bullied. It included having been sexually abused. It included having lost a, 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 a loved one. Um, and, and all of those losses like culminated into a, a grief that yes, included the loss of, of a loved one. However, the losses that were incurred because of anxiety and a profession that I had spent my entire life up until I was 23 years old, believing that, that that's what I was going to be doing, it had to stop. And when we, when we lose something that we've bet on, that we've banked on, that we have created a whole persona around, when we lose that, there's grief. It's often, people will often say, oh, you're depressed or you're, you know, this is just pure anxiety. And yet, if we track that loss, the loss back, 
we can find the moment or moments where the sense of self was lost. And the who am I? Who am I now? Who do I want to be? The trauma of having kind of a, a, a sense of disassociation from who you thought you were going to be to who you are now is such a grave loss and yet is so often um, underestimated in terms of its potency and power. And then how do you go about sort of, uh, I guess, sort of reclaiming that, that sense of self that may have gotten, I guess, fractured or, or lost in the process of, of these different sort of uh, trauma or grief experiences? So that's actually why I wrote the book. Uh, because it is a reclaiming. It's not about forgetting though. And so often we want to forget the pain, right? I see you smiling. I mean, we want to forget. We want, we want to say, oh, you know what? That didn't matter. Look where I am now. And it's true. And yet, maybe you have a series of failed relationships or maybe things just don't work out at work or maybe you know you you're not able to control your eating or you're starving yourself well what if there was a grief a, 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 a major point where you lost the self and what i talk about in the book in terms of the reclaiming of the self and truly the subtitle of you know the dance of self-discovery through trauma and loss it is trauma and loss. It is grief that can be our best teacher, that can be one of our best teachers, if you dare. So the way that it's broken down is, you know, like, who are you? Are you an introvert? Are you an extrovert? Are you an ambivert? A little bit of both. And, you know, there, there's a scale of, uh, of that. Because based on who you are, are you fixed? Are you mutable? Are you cardinal? These are all aspects, personality aspects, that can help you understand you. And it is through this understanding of the self, of, of how you cope in life, of how you present yourself, of what you say, but, who you, but what you present to the world, but who you know you really are. And they may not be the same. You may be in hiding. You may be very well veiled or shielded. And what grief does and what the reclaiming of the self is about is learning that learning about yourself going through perhaps the hero's journey going into the depths of the soul of the psyche can actually help you pivot and find more truth about the self um, than you ever realized. And maybe then be able to, because of those truths, um, reckon with the grief that you keep wanting to push away, but maybe you need to have by your side as a teacher, not to identify as, oh, you know, I'm this person who's grieving all the time, but rather I am this person who has this grief and it teaches me every single day about my choices, about how I want to live, about the people I want to have around me, about my truth, about my integrity. And grief can, can do all of those things. 
And that's part of the reclaiming of the self. Do you believe that like sort of grief and, and sort of these grief and loss experiences, do they, do they make us stronger or do they traumatize us in, in the sense that, you know, I think a lot of people, a lot of very successful people have been through quite a lot, you know, of, of difficult experiences in their life and have kind of gotten stronger um, by overcoming those. But then you take on the other hand, you know, people who also been through tons of very difficult experiences and, and they have PTSD and their lives are kind of in shambles. What's your, what's your take on that? It sounds like you're really asking two, two questions. What makes someone survive and thrive? And what makes someone who may have gone through the exact same, you know, traumas and losses and what affects their ability to survive and thrive? And, you know, it's, um, there are, are probably um, many, many studies that try to understand what what happens what we know is certainly those early years those early impressionable years and how how one is raised and how um they were held in their discontent how they they ever experienced loss and and the the little g losses even like okay so you didn't do so well at that game but we love you anyway and it doesn't mean that that's who you are and so how that was held can certainly help someone thrive or barely survive on the other hand you know it, it also has to do with the messages that we tell ourselves. One, how much we hide. You know, if someone is an introvert, there's a really good chance they may not reach out for help. They may think that they can do everything on their own. And it is being able to say, I can't, I can't do this by myself. It is, you know, oftentimes there's self, a lot of self-medication. We're seeing that right now in the middle of COVID, you know the amount of, of women who are actually using alcohol to help them calm themselves down and soothe, soothe themselves. Recent statistics, they're through the roof in terms of the alcoholism and women right now. Um, on the other hand, m men, you know, and I hate to do this, you know, kind of gender thing, but just statistically, when a heterosexual couple gets divorced, the men will tend to find a partner faster than the women. The, and if the men don't find a partner, the rate of alcoholism and drug abuse seems to be greater than with women because the socialization is different. Women will tend to gather and they have their coven of women. Men will, you know, suck it up. Or, you know, and I'm not necessarily saying, you know, the more modern man, I think that that, you know, guys now, you know, in their 20s and early 30s are talking more than their older counterparts, you know, I, and I really see that there's a shift. Um, however, you know, we see the opioid crisis and it's, it's rampant. What affects the brain? To go back to your question, what affects somebody's ability to thrive? You know, it, it, 
it can be a series of little G's that were never really dealt with. And then, and then they just, it, it, it's too much. And they haven't really, really faced those little G's. Uh, those little G's make a, make, a, make a big difference. The big G's, a lot of times there are people who will gather around you for those big G's. PTSD, you know, if, you, if your brain repeatedly gets pummeled with a crisis or if, you know, and you, you can get PTSD, you know, a woman who was raped one time can, can leave that situation with PTSD like that, okay? It's unexpected, she's not prepared, um, and the, the brain just, just clicks into, in, in, into uh, I am afraid, and it's overwhelmed, and all of the, 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 um, the symptoms that are emblematic of PTSD strike. What we also know, though, is there's a lot of, of people out there who work with PTSD, and there's a wonderful um, therapy out there called CPT, which is Cognitive Processing Therapy. I'm not gonna go into it, but it is, again, it is working with the cognitions. You know, NLP works with trauma, EMDR works with trauma. So we know that there is, that there is help. There's also, also often denial and shame, and people don't get help. So there may be symptoms or there may be early symptoms, lack of sleep, not eating correctly, no self-care, and all of those symptoms may be signs of a PTSD reaction. But if they ignore them or they hide them or they just, um, their egos won't allow them to seek help because of shame or guilt or, or fear of retribution, it, 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 it comes on itself. We know that our you know, men and women who are first, you know, are first line workers, they're out there, whether they're, you know, cops or, you know, um, men and women who work fire, the fire department or are nurses and doctors on the front line. A lot of times it, it, they're not going to get the help. They're in busy mode and the symptoms don't, don't hit until the quiet comes in. Got it. I just gave you a mouthful. No, a lot of, a lot of interesting stuff we could unpack. Um, so in terms of, in terms of people, uh, maybe more, you know, more introverted people who don't tend to seek help, what, what happens when, when there's just this, is, is does it get to kind of a tipping point where all of the kind of traumas and, and grief kind of just boils over where there becomes like problems that, that people just have to seek help for, or are some people really able to like kind of go their whole lives just stuffing all of this stuff down? I would say yes to both. Some people go through their whole lives stuffing it down. And, um, and, and that makes me sad. It's, it's so, it's, it's sad. It's, it's, it, it, it's, um, it's heart wrenching, you know. It also has to do with um, how you know care, good care, um, is expensive, and um, you know 
we could go down a very slippery slope around this conversation, but the reality is, is that healthcare in this country, as we are seeing, isn't great. And if you are, are living in a community that is impoverished or, you know, lives from paycheck to paycheck, um, they are not thriving and uh, they're angry and they have a right to be and there's not equal care, there's not equal mental health care. Um, and especially right now, you know, during this very, very hard time of COVID uh, with um, money um, on some level free flowing and then on another level, uh, you know, there are a lot of stop gaps with the flow of money to mental health care um, clinics. The clinics have closed down some of the hospital programs have closed down because they've needed room and space for the for for the emergencies. Not that the opioid crisis or other healthcare isn't important, but you know people in need and and of need. Um, there's an apathy, and and um, I think it's you know we are having we're able you and I are having a discussion um, that. Um, a lot of people will be listening to, but they have access to internet. They have access to a computer. This conversation very well may, may not get to the people who might need to hear it, who might realize, oh, I could go onto my phone and I could find some things that could help me. They're not hearing that. They don't even know it. And there's also, you know, a, the uh, um, grave opinions about sharing your stuff with others and uh, it, within, within um, certain cultures, you keep it to yourself, you stay silent and you suffer in silence. And um, you, know, you, you, you hold up to a sense of um, pride and um, the pride may kill you. Um, let me ask you, Edie, if, if you could kind of play God for a second and, and sort of if, if there was anything that, it, you know, you could go and kind of change the landscape of like the psychological health care in this country. Like, do you have any ideas as far as what what you would specifically change? How much time do we have? <laughs> um, we got about 10 minutes. <laughs> Um, yeah, anything, anything that comes to mind as far as just because you obviously you're, you're kind of, you know, being, you're, you're working with all of these people, you're seeing, you know, I guess kind of what works and what doesn't with this sort of healthcare model and, and being, you know, a practitioner. Well, you know, there's a, you know, there's the, there's a, a very political question within each clinician's licensure. And so what it does is, and I'm, I, I don't know if you've heard about this, but like now, right now telehealth, which was not popular, it, it was unpopular. The insurance companies would not really allow clinicians, therapists to do telehealth um, unless you were in an area where people really had no access. Other than that, I could you know, my licensure is only allowed in the state of New York or any other state that I might be licensed in. Instead of having really a licensure that goes, that, that 
allows all of us to practice in all states so that we take one test and we all pass that test and, and it's not a state by state jurisdiction. That could actually get everybody on the same page. Going into these lower income areas and setting up clinics there, setting up like clinicians there and making them into like safe, like safe homes almost so that that you know it is understood you know by anybody who lives there that when someone is there they are safe because part of what stops you know <laughs> medical people or clinicians going into those lower income environments is a, la a lack of safety a sense of fear and if there was some way to to help the clinician feel safe and everybody kind of agrees to that, maybe that would be a way to enhance mental health care. But mental health is not just about mental health um, in, in, those, in those environments because they're not getting good food. They're not, you go to their grocery stores in their, in, 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 you know, in, in those, um, um, jurisdictions and you, you 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 would be appalled to see that the vegetables are subpar and their meats are often subpar and you know and 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 they may not even understand how much fried food affects their weights affects their blood pressure affects their hearts you know and so so truly it is it is about education and it is about giving a, 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 a sense of um, a sense of of of, of importance and, and and a sense of self and a sense of your you know what you think is important and 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 structure it you know in many in many different ways and in many different baskets. So to me, it's it's it, it, it's it's having this conversation in a, in a much, much bigger way that if I were God, you know, I would make sure that, that everyone was fed and clothed, you know, basic things that, that everyone knew how to cook a healthy meal or even how to, how to choose, you know, what is healthy or how to make something that tastes fried, but isn't and give them options. And, teach teach women how when they're frustrated with their kids or men when they're frustrated with their wives or their partners you know that 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 they can learn how to self-soothe that they can learn how to calm themselves down but the anger and the agitation and the anxiety is filtered through a lens that is far beyond um just this simple conversation this is systemic. Well said. Well, Edie, uh, we're, we're coming up onto the end of the show. For uh, people who enjoyed our conversation and want to find out more about uh, your work, your book, where would you direct them to? My website, ednathan.com. That's E-D-Y-N-A-T-H-A-N.com. And uh, you can, when you go onto my website, there's, um, if you sign up for my newsletter, 
you will get a free chapter of my book. And if you mention that you heard me on your show, Toby, on this show, you know, I will also send a, um, a download or, um, uh, recording like a, just a, yeah, something. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I'll highly recommend people go check that out. Um, and for those listeners who did enjoy the show, go ahead and like, and subscribe to our YouTube channel for Roscoe's wetsuit neuro. And also you can find audio versions of the podcast available on Spotify, Apple podcasts, Stitcher, and just about anywhere else that audio podcasts are available. Edie, again, thanks so much for coming on the show. Really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you, Toby. Me too. Absolutely.